0: What a Woman. Conversations with powerful women who share powerful stories. This podcast was created by me, your host, Caroline Lyons, and my friend and producer, Sarah Benner, two mums searching for inspiration. And we hope you'll be inspired too. That This series is sponsored by Serenity Spa in the Rose Hotel Tralee, and they are offering Water Woman listeners 10% off the Elemis Biotech ProGlo Plus facial treatments. So book yours now and quote What A Woman podcast to enjoy this exclusive offer. Welcome to the podcast, Joanna Fortune. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Um, so you are a clinical psychotherapist, um, and your expertise is in children and adolescents. I think some 20 years experience. Uh, As we just said, regularly or every week on News Talk, offering advice. You have a podcast, uh, contribute to the Irish Examiner, um, offering advice, much needed advice um, to parents. And you have written books. We've got a couple of the books here as well. Yes. Um, So uh, we're just delighted to have. Oh, it's um, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, here with us. Um, Just preparing for today, I I was reading a a, a quote, actually, um, Lady Philippa Perry from the UK Mm -hmm. who who works on parenting, and she was saying, how we need to help children to be who they are and not our fantasy of who we want them to be. And that, that really struck me and I thought that could be quite a good starting point.
1: Yeah, I mean there's layers to even that sentiment in itself because you know when we're carrying our children, if that's how we're, we're bringing them into the world uh, or how they're coming into our families, you know, when we're pregnant, we already have a picture of what that baby is going to be like. Not mm. just what they will look like but we imagine them it's the fantasy baby and part of the process of moving from pregnancy into birthing and then parenting your baby is that you let go of some of that fantasy so that you can get to know love ac- accept the real baby that's in front of you and it's part of that kind of psychological journey into parenthood and it, just because it's something that happens as a part of the process doesn't mean that's easy and it can be you know so much it, for so many parents i speak with around s- moving away from seeing our children as an extension of ourselves You know that they're not they Mm. are independent little beings and some of them that come into our families will teach us that a lot quicker (laughs) than some of the other ones (laughs) will and remind us of that all the time. But it's really important that we do because I think the idea of parenting is to raise our children to grow up and leave us, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's very painful in one way, but there's so much hope in it as well that we aren't just raising children. We're raising people. We're raising Adults, and it's a whole entire trajectory that begins in infancy and continues
0: right the way up into young adulthood, really. But it's sometimes I'm torn because I like, you know, I think there's that idea of yeah, that the, the child is their own person. We've got to almost re- respect that in them in a yes. way. Um, a lot of the time, we're always tell it, telling them off and telling them what not to do, as if they haven't got minds of their own. But sometimes I feel that parenting advice is flipped to we've always got to be listening and kind of doing what they want and tuning in and I know getting down to their level and being calm and being nice and reasonable about everything and sometimes that feels so impossible. But But it's it's overwhelming as well sometimes. and it's not
1: supposed to be one extreme or the other it's not supposed to be tell them what to do or do what they want to do it really is our role as parents is to provide the scaffolding because our children really need boundaries and safe limits. Now thank you for those boundaries said no child ever. They're never going to Mm. thank you for them or high five. You and go loving the limits today. You're nailing limits having (laughs) their mom or dad. So instead they thank us in how they live and how they relate because boundaries actually give us a sense of safety and not just the kind of safety that the windows and doors are locked and we're physically safe in our homes. But it's that inner state felt safety that we feel safe within ourselves in relation to others within the world or environment around us and that comes from growing up with safe clear consistent reliable boundaries but boundaries are rooted in structure and structure bends it bends without breaking but it's flexible and adaptable it changes to the different things that your child is bringing to you the different circumstances everything doesn't need to be a battle everything isn't a teach moment you pick your battles and that's where boundaries come in rules are rigid so it's not a matter of us saying, follow my rules, because that helps me feel calm and safe as the adult. Nor is it a case of, well, I'll march to your beat and you decide how the tempo of this family moves, because that's not healthy for any child. They will do it, by the way, but it's not healthy for them. And instead, it's about seeing that by the time we react to something our children are doing or saying it is rarely because of what they're doing or saying it is mostly because of what got activated or triggered Mm. within us by their doing or saying of it. So I think sometimes the message can get confused between what is our role in modern parenting are we following the kids are they doing what we say where does it go. Actually a lot of it is about going inward to look at well what is in me to get activated and don't hold your child responsible for that. That's our work and our journey.
0: Well, we just were talking about that on the way up, actually, about uh, how you have to try and stay in your adult and not get into your child. Like I know and I was just saying, Sarah, I mean, I had an argument with my daughter earlier this week. She's 11 and I was I got totally like in my child. I was I started to get so sort of angry and irrational and And you just then you look back and you obviously you regret that. But it's so easy to do Those but there's like the buttons are pushed. So it's 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 hard to walk walk away because I was saying
2: to Mm -hmm. Caroline, I had the same with my daughter, Charlotte, who's age 10, who I love dearly. But boy, can she challenge me, Um, you know, (laughs) and it's it's just trying to keep you cool. That's where I find it's Mm. and and it's the stubbornness. It's the I don't know, is it the age? This this.
1: you're both talking kind of 10, 11 year olds. And that's that middle child. And they're well in middle child stage of development. By then it's eight to 12 years. And they're fast approaching that pre-adolescent phase. And the boundary of which is actually ever, you know, lowering. Really, children are deemed pre-adolescent by the time they're 10 years old very often. But you can get that kind of pseudo maturity that kicks in around that age and pseudo maturity is almost where you're postulating or acting like you're savvier or more mature than you developmentally are so you can get these flashpoints at that stage where I feel like I can take on the world and I don't need you at all you know nothing you haven't a clue And then the next day I'll be crying, going, oh, please hold my hand when we're going somewhere. Give me a hug or help me or I need you to do this for me. So you can get these big swings between I don't need you and I desperately need you because I'm still discovering, I'm still growing up. And I think we often talk about those very important early years that so much development, brain development and relational development uh, is happening. And then we tend to catapult forward to speak about the tricky, challenging adolescent years. And we, you know, short circuit the conversation around the all-important middle childhood years. And those years are very important because what's happening there is our brains are going through a process of almost like a synaptic pruning, where the parts of the brain that were very much needed for all the development, the surge in development in early childhood, is pushing back to create space for the surge in development again in the brain that's fast coming in adolescence. But we get huge swings in middle childhood between I want you, I don't want you. My important hub of social development is shifting from family to the outside world. My peers, what my friends think, what I think they think. And the worst thing you could say to me is nobody's thinking about you or nobody's talking about you because. That will also consume me. You'll see that I get this pronounced uh, focus on justice and fairness, usually as it applies to me, by the way, you know, I'll tell you exactly what you've done wrong and how it's wrong and unfair and unjust (laughs) to me and how, you know, three Tuesdays ago on a rainy morning, you said something else to my sibling that you're now saying the opposite to me and how dare you do that and (laughs) you don't know what you did yesterday so you're like you're on the back foot going did I did I say that
2: it's just now it's like (laughs) a 10 year old nowadays they seem more I suppose they're exposed to so much more with social media absolutely so like what I remember being 10 I was I I thought it was quite an innocent 10 year old I mean I suppose there was a lot of play and outdoors yes they're just it's like dealing what feels like with a 14 year old.
1: But I think you've hit on something really important there in terms of the influence of social media and technology on this stage of development, because you know, one of the things we look at is play patterns definitely change as our children grow and you will see more kind of structured, organized play in middle childhood, you know, uh, team sports, bikes, scooters, things like that, gaming certainly as well. But the research doesn't bear out this idea that children that age have outgrown play. The research tells us that if you make imaginative, creative, relational play available, accessible, appealing, at that age, they will migrate to it just as much as younger children do. But often we tend to have deemed that our children have outgrown that stage of play, or oh, they don't do that anymore. And we stop bidding to connect with them at that level. And then when you add in the layer of social media, and I would always think that as best we can, and I know the pressures, especially the pester power pressures that are ramping up at this age as well, but it, as long as we can delay the point of access to social media for them, the better it is for their psychosocial emotional development it keeps them playing and playful much longer because you it's very difficult to remain your child's main influencer when they're exposed to so many mm. influencers on various platforms and then they quite naturally because again of their stage of development they're taking on mannerisms they're taking on language vernacular poses makeup they all sound styles. american you know but it's <laughs> know, the attitude <laughs> and the swagger that comes it, in they're they're mirroring who and what they're saying yeah. but also it's really incumbent on us parents to become interested in what interests our children because it teaches our children they're interesting. And that will help us to sustain the connection at a time when it is coming under pressure because you will get these flashpoints of attitude, as we said, and it'll come out in smart comments or bickering or rouse and that can drive disconnect. So by, you know, a lot of parents will talk about how God, I haven't a clue who they're looking at online or I don't know who that person is. Actually, we need to know who they're looking at online, who they're listening to, especially if you hear things that you're like, oh, I'm not that comfortable with that or I don't really like the way that's coming out. Then we can open up a conversation and go, gosh, when I was listening, this is how it sounded to me. And this is what it made me think of. What What did you make of it? Mm. And that keeps the lines of communication open so that when they hear something and they now know I'm allowed to disagree with this person I otherwise admire, I'm allowed to say, oh, that doesn't sit well with me. And I know I can bring that uncertainty to you rather than the internet my friends or anybody else so that we remain an influencer to stay with that language and influencer in our children's lives
0: mm-hmm. and those swings you were talking about as you said as they're coming through these these years, sort of mid what did you say the mid childhood those kind of eight
1: to twelve year old years yeah. yeah
0: um is there any tips with managing those swings
1: I always think it's important at this stage well at every stage really to think about who does your child remind you of in your life Can be quite a humbling (laughs) experience, you know, and I think if you do that and it's you or if it's someone else in your family, maybe a sibling or a parent or I don't know, somebody else in either of your families, then you want to sit and go, well, how do I feel about that person and what might be getting displaced from that relationship onto this one. Am I reacting to my child or overreacting to my child because of unprocessed or undealt with feelings that actually belong in another relationship in my life? When it's ourselves that we see reflected back through our children, just hit the pause button momentarily and say, how would I wish that I had been responded to in this moment at her age? And I think that's a great starting point. We can't always do it in the moment because we're human (laughs) and you will snap and you will react and you will say the wrong thing. But we're the grown ups. So when we have those ruptures in our relationship and I'm very much saying when because it will happen, we can and we should. It is our responsibility always to go back and initiate repair. It doesn't matter who said what, who did what. Who slammed what door the person who initiates repair is always the parent because we are teaching our children that our relationship matters more than being right and our relationship is stronger than the row so it's about going back and going hey that didn't go the way I wish it did my feelings got really loud I yelled I wish I didn't yell here's what I wish I did instead can I get a do over. And at no point of that, do I say with a dramatic pause and have you something to say to me as well. I
2: say. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I actually was saying that to my daughter. I said, have you heard of the word sorry? And she was like, sorry, but <laughs> but it's great advice, Joanna, because sometimes as parents, um, we don't know what to do or what's the right thing yeah. to do. And and we're all trying to do our best. And we all of course.
1: And I think all of this comes from such a good place Mm. and good intentions. But we are, you know, just as we are the parents of our children, we are also we survived being children, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, and the good, the bad and the ugly and everything else. And I always think part of growing up and reaching adulthood is realizing that your parents had have limitations and you love them anyway.
0: if I mean you mentioned boundaries if if you're not if you're, if you're not very good with boundaries I know mm. for sure I haven't been strong enough with boundaries and then you think we've really made a rod for your own back with a lot of things any advice with that I mean
1: sometimes with children when you know you may have given them the phones or the devices let's take that one for example and we didn't put kind of parameters on usage and we realize well we kind of did but we're not consistent in how we roll that out you know taking that or anything else that you have poor boundaries around Approaching it from a position of paradox can be interesting for children where you come in and you say I am so sorry I got this terribly wrong I've made a huge mistake I've let you down I'm so so sorry because immediately they're going to be like why what did you do (laughs) and I don't think it's that bad and then you can say I didn't talk to you about how we're supposed to use devices or whatever it is. Again, I wasn't clear about how we do that in our family. I just let it happen. And now it's really important. I owe it to you to be really clear about my expectations, because then I won't get frustrated with you. You won't feel like, how did I know I was even getting that wrong? We're going to sit down as a family and we're going to agree a plan of action around whatever it is that we're all in agreement with again I'm so sorry that I let this slide I'm going to do better I'll be much clearer now
0: I've got quite a lot of stories to
1: do (laughs) (laughs) and I think it's like children our children are generally so forgiving of our transgressions and quick to give us do-overs and say you're all right you're not as bad as you think you are <laughs> and because we're not we're never as bad as we think we are and we're you know always getting much more right than we're getting wrong it's just that we're that negative bias that w- uh, wires us to go that one thing I got wrong as a parent and we amplify it versus all of the things that we get right every single day that keep our children safe but I think then it's about saying and your child might be, no it's fine you don't have to do any rules and go no I do
2: I really do. I, so it's kind of reverse psychology literally
1: Bit, but it's also taking responsibility for when things go wrong, you know. Like, I will always say, give a do over if your child is acting up or they're pushing boundaries, because that's their job, by the way. So, we don't always jump to punish them for that, but say, Oh, I think you forgot how we do that in our house. I think you forgot how we speak to each other. I think you forgot how we put things in the fridge when we're done with them, or whatever it might be. I think you forgot. Do you want to try it again?
2: Yeah, yeah. we we were at a talk recently. in and it was uh, it, w- it was about parenting and there was a few people in the audience and there was one particular girl I was just thinking of her because both of us are our children are coming up to secondary school and she said that her, her two daughters just refused to go to school mm. and what
0: do you do with stubbornness I mean this blatant she, kind of yeah I think in the end she 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 I think she might have taken their phones but she just had to leave them at home and go to work for that particular that day because she you know, and do, I suppose they're probably the same are, size yeah. as her. They're kind of. Like yeah, I mean, blank. it's
1: very complicated, but I would think that's more than stubbornness because school refusal is a whole thing in and of itself. And it's really complex. And there's often a um, multitude of variables that are contributing to it. I may have had a negative experience in school with peer dynamics. Perhaps I was bullied. I may be struggling cognitively with schoolwork or whatever it might be. I may feel isolated and without a peer group. So it's a very lonely, long day to be in. I may be having other unrelated Mental health challenges, but maybe anxiety or low mood or whatever it is that might be going on for me. Maybe there's something going on at home. Maybe there's relationship difficulties with my parents. Maybe there's been a bereavement in the family. Maybe somebody's very sick. Maybe somebody's moving away. Whatever it is, there's often layers of story underneath a refusal to go to school and not always but very often I would even say mostly that is not your child trying to be difficult for you on a Monday Tuesday morning I'm not going what are you going to do it's very rarely solely about opposition or defiance it's not that I'm saying how can I make your life difficult today it's mostly me trying to convey to you I'm having a difficulty I'm not being difficult I'm having a difficulty and I think we have to respond to school refusal in a very kind of uh, almost like a team approach you know a collaborative approach because as parents alone school refusal if anyone's listening and dealing with it you know exactly how difficult that is because like you said Caroline you know you can't just make somebody go to mm, school you physically with your teenager especially. you can maybe get them into the car you can maybe get the car to the gate but then you are trying to emotionally shoehorn them out of the car to get them into the school and it's all of this heightened battle mm. but the longer it goes on the harder it becomes to go back to school so when this is happening First of all, quite quickly go to what might be the context. Is there something specific and is it transient? You know, are we going through a very difficult time right now? But I know that's going to end and things will return to normal. But I would say reach out to your school. Schools are well versed in this, well experienced in it. We saw a huge spike in school refusal after COVID Mm -hmm. restrictions and children were moving back into school environments. Um, You know, some children thrived when they were, you know, learning at home, some did not both of those types of children will, may have struggled going back to school but working collaboratively with perhaps a mental health provider certainly your school and as parents and the young person in question is the approach to school refusal because I can play out stubbornness in any in a myriad of ways like I can be stubborn any old way school refusal is a very specific thing to engage in and it's really complex yeah
0: it's interesting is yeah. there also an issue I mean because it all it all makes sense what you're saying but i suppose in the heat of the moment sometimes we just can't always be rational and we're, we're under such pressure now parents we're so busy we're, we're trying to, do, to be somewhere uh, we, yeah exactly we we were saying this on the in, clock i think it's partly the way societal pressures but um it's all parents but especially women we're trying to do it all and we're working, and we're running the home, and we're you mm-hmm. know, and we just don't often have enough time to even yeah. have these sort of more rational conversations and things. We can s- get
2: yeah. toxic, fairly lively yeah. because that's I mean, what because that
0: we're running on about yeah. twenty percent c- battery. That's what we said. You haven't even the energy yeah. to have to. I mean, you must be seeing that as well. And
1: oh, absolutely, and I think the increasing demands on busy. Working families are only increasing and it can give you that sense that you're running just to stand still. But that's never the responsibility of our children. And it is not for a child to change their developmental behavior to fit our frenetic paced adult lives because we're the adults in that equation. And sometimes it is about saying this isn't working. That doesn't mean, by the way, I can change much of it, you know, uh, I maybe have to work and this is the demands that I'm under. But it can change how I approach my child within that. Of course, you're behaving the way you are. We're just basically passing in, the, you know, passing ships. Not, you know, we're not touching base. And I, sometimes I want to sit and say, well, when is the last time you and your child really enjoyed each other, like really enjoyed each other, enjoyed being together, had that opportunity for shared joy? fun, laughter, pleasure. And if you're sitting there going, um, well, mm, it was, was there something last week or was it the week before? That's a sign. That's a red flag to, OK, I need to build in those moments of meeting, which are those times that we can truly connect. Not that I have one ear on you, an eye on the phone and a hand stirring a pot all at once. Because I'm going, yeah, wh- what did you say? What was that? It's that my toes follow my nose. So that I orient my body fully to face you when you're speaking to me and I teach you, yes, I am here. I am invested. I'm totally available. I can reflect back to you what I'm hearing you say. I can get curious about it without criticizing. Is there something you wanted me to do around that? Maybe I just wanted to share it with you and I don't want a, a resolution from you at all. But it gives me that moment. It's also why, though, in my practice, I advocate, you know, what I call 15 minute parenting, you know, or 15 minute not for one moment that I've cracked that we can parent our children in 15 minutes a day I could retire if that was the case but it's really about ring fencing a pocket of time be it 15 minutes be it more if you have it that I will be truly 100% available and if I'm saying in our family life we cannot find 15 minutes Mm. a day Mm. then yes as adults we need to sit Mm. down and re-examine how things are going because that's on us not our children and
0: would you say with some of the children that come to you or the parents that bring children to you that you you discover that quite a lot of the root of the problem is they're just not getting enough time and attention
1: well I mean and this again that you know the whole research was done and going back some years now with the child um, happiness reports well-being and happiness and the research showed that children in wealthy developed countries of which we're allegedly still one um, you know that they said they will take the stuff we give them by the way (laughs) they will take it but they would give it all back for extra time with us every day and I know a lot of parents go absolutely not they totally want the phones the gadgets the gizmos the toys they will take that because but we initiate that materialism not them Mm. and if we replace that with time they will take that presence with a C over presence
0: with a T. And this
1: is maybe a really good time of year to think about that.
0: And do you think, I mean, obviously, you know, if we're perhaps, you know, we haven't been willing to make these changes and make enough time. So we're just quick to, to label children instead. I mean, we are seeing a rise in, in different conditions coming through in lots of, in, even in our own school where our children go. Um and obviously it's it's great if certain children are getting a diagnosis which can really help them and make a Absolutely. difference. Isn't it? But it seems so on the rise levels of ADHD, for example. And I wondered are, are we is from what you're seeing, are we being a bit too quick to try and fix something or label something when it could be something else going on?
1: It could be, but it also could be a little from column A and a little from column B, and we can't rule out comorbidity. I can be a child with a neurological vulnerability who is also stressed and anxious from a busy, frenetic paced life. Those two things can coexist without canceling each other out. So I think if you're concerned about your child in any kind of neurodiverse way, you owe it to yourself and your child to have that question explored and answered. And no professional is going to give you a diagnosis without evidence that there is something there. But it may be that in addition to this, what else can I do? And some of our children and you can have this in a sibling group. So you're never parenting a group, you're parenting individuals. You know that one, you may have a slower paced child in your family who just moves slower than the rest of you in the morning. That child is often going to be scapegoated by the rest of us and told, oh, you're the slow one. Come on, you're holding us up. You're late Tortoise. and yeah. actually that child is slower paced and we all know it. And really, I could get up 10, 15 minutes early because I know that child is not going to get up the first, second or third time I call Mm -hmm. them. So instead of putting the pressure on them to change who they are, I could look at how can we adapt our routine to be more inclusive of everybody in this family?
2: Yeah, because we were on the way up, we were talking. Obviously, there's so many things now, but one of the things uh, like ADHD, do you think is that genetic or is it a reflection on what's going on at home? Because it seems there so can prominent. be a number
1: of variables and lots of different schools of thought on this as well. But I think, you know, there there are certainly, you know, there is genetic components and there are also lifestyle variables that can amplify something that's there. So anybody who's living with a neurodiverse diagnosis knows, well, if I change these environmental factors, I feel calmer, I feel centered. It works for me. So it's never just one or the other. I think we have to look at things more holistically in terms of, you know, even if I get a diagnosis or my child does, we still have to live in this world that is very neurotypical oriented. And so I'm always looking at what what other supports do parents, do families, do children and as societies do we need to invest in to make living with any diagnosis an easier journey for people. Mm -hmm. I think that's incumbent on all of us, not just somebody who happens to have a diagnosis.
0: If you're thinking of changing your car, then check out Kerry Motorworks, one of Munster's largest dealerships selling used and new vehicles at www.kerrymotorworks.ie. And thank you to Kerry Motorworks for sponsoring the podcast.
2: Do you think there's such a thing as a ball child?
0: No. No. No, not at all.
1: And, you know, I don't really buy into that. I I don't think children, because that would kind of put it that child is doing this they're Mm -hmm. consciously you know sitting there hmm how can I mess things up for you today and they're putting on the bold hat and they're behaving this way I I tend to look at all overt behavior in terms of what's underpinning it Mm -hmm. what is the physical and emotional state that's underpinning this behavior and I don't want that to sound like I'm advocating permissive parenting that's not what this is about I mean often we have to respond to overt behavior in the now And say, hey, hey, we don't do that, or no, this isn't okay, or that's not safe. We have to, you know, respond to the behavior. But then I also want us getting very curious about, could you be hungry, thirsty, tired, unwell? Could I feed my way through this behavior problem instead of just talking about the behavior? Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. If I give you a drink and a snack, is the behavior going to go away or what's the emotional state? Have I had you out and about in a busy shopping center for four hours now and you're emotionally done? And that's why I'm seeing this behavior, because then I can say, you know what? Let's wrap this up and go home instead of the behavior response. More in
2: tune with your child, like you say. We we put it out to a few of our friends kind of questions to ask and um, bullying and exclusion. uh, It's terrible, Mm -hmm. isn't it?
1: It's really damaging. And I think, you know, again, you know, bullying is really that kind of conscious, repeated, targeted behavior by one child against another or one person. By the way, it doesn't just happen with children or, uh, you know, one may be inciting a group to isolate another. it's very serious and when it happens we should respond immediately go to the school or the a- after school or the activity wherever it's happening and pull in people and address this schools all have bullying policies and I think just go make sure you've read it proactively by the way don't wait till you have a problem to look for the policy be familiar with it and respond right away but I also think you know we have to step back sometimes and look at What's bullying, like I said, very serious, can have lifelong damaging consequences. And what is rude, mean, unpleasant behavior, which isn't bullying
2: or immaturity? Like well, and some so, people, yeah, some children do behave in realize, particular ways
1: yeah. because they're hungry, thirsty, tired, unwell or they've ha- or they're overwhelmed. But it also, you know, it developmentally, especially the younger ones, you know, really under seven, under eight, you can even see it up to nine with some of them. D- engaging in what we call microaggressions uh, you know mm. in the playground yeah. where it's my ball you can't play you're in you're out I don't want you in this game and that may not be bullying Yeah, yeah. but, but it's not the, pleasant either
0: and when it's not pleasant I mean I wonder do is there an element that you have to let the kids exp- go figure this out a little bit themselves it, when they're in that environment because I know I had a few issues with one of my daughters and me and th- the other mums were almost more getting as upset or more so mm-hmm. than than our daughters yeah. over it because it was very upsetting but then was there an element that they, they it's part it is going to be part and parcel of, of life and,
1: and it is and I don't think we do our children any favors by jumping in to rescue them from every difficult experience they will have they will have them And I don't think it's good for children that every problem they have is dealt with on their behalf by parents, because all that does is teach me that when I'm having a difficulty, I need to sit in that difficulty for the duration of time. I'm away from you because I can't do anything. I have to wait till I get back to you to fix it. I also think we can do that when our children are struggling and we might inadvertently minimize or dismiss their experience by saying, ah, oh, don't be worried about that or don't be thinking about that. We don't reassure our children when we do that. We teach them not to bring problems to us. And we want them to do it. So when our children bring us their difficult experiences and we're immediately going into that inquisitive stance of, okay, what level are we at here? Is this a bullying situation? Is this something else? Do I believe you have capacity to resolve this yourself? I'm going to listen to what you say. I'm going to repeat it back to you. It gives me time to think. It lets them correct anything I've misunderstood. They get to hear their own words reflected back. And then I'm going to say, is there something you want me to do? And if their answer is no, no, I'll deal with it myself. We have to let them do it. It doesn't mean two, three days later you might go about that thing. <laughs> is it now okay? And they might say, actually I do need help. But if we jump in straight away and we call the other parents or we go to the school or whatever it is, it quickly becomes our issue, our row, and our children will get over it, you know, very often, especially if they fall out with a peer, they might make up And now you've this awkwardness forevermore at the school gate or wherever it might be. There will definitely be times you have to intervene. But there are many more times when that's not your role. And we do need to bring our children to a place where they can master tension rousing experiences, where they can have those difficulties and say it's a bad day. You know, I'm having a
0: hard time, but I'll be okay." Mm. Just for some of our friends that have older teens and they were talking again about the boundaries. But when you might have those teens that are might be wanting to do certain things they might be at a point to try drinking or have have sex or try a, a vape or there's the coming across drugs and they, they you know how sort of do you go about the boundaries there or perhaps maybe there are some mistakes they're going to need to make uh, this that balance
1: there i mean gosh i mean you've named the big ones there so some of that isn't about boundaries some of that is you know boundaries with an edge it's limits and boundaries and saying no you cannot do that because as parents i'm not going to support you in engaging in drug taking that i know is very risky for you so as parents it's about being aware of what our children are exposed to but that doesn't mean that well they're all going to do it so i just need to be cool with it no you don't i always think in parenting there are Things that might be my parental preferences, things I'd prefer you to do or not to do. And then there are my parental essentials. This is an absolute no no in this family, and I won't move on this one. And I've been very clear about it all along, and there are consequences for some of that. I think when our children are considering big life choices, like whether they're going to have sex or drink alcohol, I would hope that they can bring that to us in a question, but beware, they're not going to come and say, oh, going out drinking on Friday. you cool with that? Because it's happening anyway. They're more likely to go behind our back because it's a risk taking behavior and teenagers are hardwired to take risk. So they're more likely to do it in that way. And we're then coming back and saying, well, what are we going to do with that? So some of it is learning on the go. Think of it that way. I'm going to be parenting you in adolescence. It's not the first time you go drinking. And I realize, God, we never talked about alcohol. We needed to have talked about that beforehand. You're going to be exposed to temptation. Some of your friends are going to be doing things. People are going to offer you things. And when it isn't comfortable, That is your body's way and your mind's way of saying, this is not for me. You're allowed to say no. You can always pretend I'm super strict and won't let you do something. You can send me an emoji or a word and I will call you and say, oh, something's come up. I've got to come get you. I will get you out of that. I will equip you with ways to manage those situations. When it happens, I'm going to say when instead of if, when our children, in spite of all of that, They do break the rules. They do push the boundaries again in adolescence. That's what they're supposed to be doing. The part of the adolescent brain that develops very, very quickly is the thrill-seeking, reward-oriented part of the brain. And the part that takes until our mid to late 20s to develop is that part associated with, well, is that really such a good idea? So they're neurologically wired to take risks. So when it happens and you're very disappointed, upset, whatever it is, you will react because you're human. And then it's about responding. Then it's about, okay. this has happened. This is my thinking and feeling on it. This is where I'm coming from. And this is why I really don't want this to happen again. I'm worried about you and let me help you through it. But there isn't a foolproof anecdote that I'm going to give you and go. And that means they will never do drugs (laughs) and never (laughs) drink alcohol because they're going to engage in risk taking behavior. But What we're so worried and focused on negative risks that we forget to promote positive risk-taking behavior. And that doesn't just start in adolescence. It starts much, much younger. And anything that has an inherent chance of winning and losing. So sports, team sports in particular, is a positive risk-taking behavior. Volunteering, trying a new activity, engaging in something that puts me in a group outside of my typical peer group, learning new skills, taking positive chances are actually all positive risk taking behaviors that will also feed that part of our teenagers brains. So I would say r- make sure you're inv- not risk averse, but engaging and investing in positive risk taking behaviors from as young an age as possible and growing that up with them. And then, yes, you will be parenting them through. But in adolescence, communication is so important, but it's also when it gets so, so difficult. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just very last point, Um, just something I was reading again, preparing for today. Um, thinking about image obviously it's very important for for adolescents and i read that that male body dysmorphia is set to overtake women's females Mm -hmm. in the next 10 15 years and that shocked me i suppose i grew up in the the 90s and it was all about skinny and and I've daughters so that's something i'm very conscious of but it's interesting to think how that's really affecting young boys, and I thought for our listeners with sons, mm-hmm. is that something you're oh, seeing? Oh, I see. I see a lot of yeah. that,
1: and uh, I work a lot with teenagers, and I work a lot with teenage boys, and that would be a frequent conversation coming up. And I get it. I mean, we look at the influences. I mean, they're also exposed to influencers, and there's a lot of you know, Jim Spo's, you know, all of these kind of ta- hashtags they follow, and it's all body beautiful, and it's all a particular type of physique. So the emotional charge around what our bodies look like is very much there and it's there for boys too and the pressure for them to conform to a physical body type we know our teenagers I'm slow to almost bring this up at the very end of our conversation but you know are also watching pornography and they're getting a lot of their sex information from pornography and there's all particular body types in that too and bodies looking a certain way they're also watching TV shows where adolescent roles are played by adult actors you know and there's no way a teenager could have a body or a physique like that so there's a whole lot going on for young men as well that they are under immense pressure and you know there is research on that you know the Dove Self-Esteem Project in Ireland did a whole body of research about self-esteem and particularly targeted you know self-esteem in young boys around that 13 to 17 year old age group and there I mean there is a difference I do want to say that between self-esteem between boys and girls and especially low self-esteem I mean between boys and girls but not as much as you would think. And, you know, young, young boys also saying that they've cancelled participating in activities and events based on how they feel about their appearance. So it is a conversation, you're absolutely right, growing up at the same time, very aware it was something very much female-oriented, you know, our conversation to have with girls and talk about girls and bodies and self-esteem. Actually, this is a conversation we have with our children, regardless of their gender that we have this conversation openly and regularly with them and focusing on what the body can do over what it looks like, focusing on being healthy rather than being thin or buff or muscly or whatever language and avoiding body based nicknames for our children from the young age, you know, whether you're calling them Buddha or stretch or skinny Malink or any of that. So
2: careful what you say, yeah, because it sticks, doesn't it? It
1: does. Those are the echoes that play out later on. So it is just really parenting in a very body aware way you know body positive certainly but just being aware yeah.
0: um, and actually about aware that. of how we're t- communicating about how we feel about our own bodies absolutely as well really they take their emotional behavior yeah.
1: cues from us always
0: yeah. yeah well look Joanna it's been I mean we could talk all day and I'm I would like to ho- hope that we might get a chance to talk another time I would love so, that there's yeah. so much that just so much even from today I've taken away but it's fantastic you also have your books um, so obviously listeners can, can look into those sure. and all of this information is it's nice and compact in your the, 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 is it the latest one the,
1: the latest book I have is Why We Play, that's really about play in the lives of us adults, you know, be you a parent or not because I think we could all live more playful yep. lives I like and the, sound of that. the <laughs> other three books are the 15 minute parenting series so they're broken up to 0 to 7 years, 8 to 12 years and the teenage years and it's a very playful approach to parenting so there's a lot of play in there and playful communication brilliant brilliant, well,
2: brilliant. Fantastic. Fantastic. thanks so much well, thanks thank you. You. Yeah. so
0: much for your time yeah we've taken so much from that yeah excellent thank, thank, you thank you so you much so for much. having me